This is Shayla Adam Stafford, and you're listening to Project Based Learning in Practice. Thank you for tuning in to another week of PBL in Practice, a weekly broadcast where we talk with top leaders in project based learning from across the nation to discover best practices, share successes and failures, and most importantly, learn from each other. My name is Sheila Adam Stafford, and I've been an educator for the past 10 years focusing specifically on project-based learning. I'm also the founder of Remix Education, a nonprofit that serves first-generation college-bound students and a member of the national faculty of the Buck Institute for Education. Enough about me, let's get into our guest for this week. Our guest for today is former community organizer, teacher, and founding school leader, Andrew Biros. Andrew has sought to empower folks to positively shape their own lives. He currently serves as a school development coach with the New Tech Network, where he works with communities across the country concerning leadership development, network weaving, and organizational change. podcast is brought to you by the Buck Institute for Education, who believes that all students, no matter where they live or what their background, should have access to quality project-based learning to deepen their learning and achieve success in college, career, and life. As a teacher and coach, I can honestly say they have some awesome resources available on their website. Everything from books to project planning guides to project calendars, rubrics, assessment maps, you name it. They offer services that can really help your staff or district implement high-quality PBL, including training, coaching, and my favorite, Project Slices, where educators get the experience of going through a PBL project as if they were students. Check out all they have to offer on their site, www.bie.org. Again, that's www.bie.org. Hi, Andrew. How's it going? Hi, Shayla. It's going quite well. Good to chat with you. I'm excited. Excited to catch up a little bit. I know. It's great to hear from you. Andrew and I met, what was it, 11 years ago, I guess? Oh, Um, (laughs) Oh, man. We're getting old in the game. Um, It was a while ago at the um, Woodrow Wilson Fellowship uh, Conference. Mm -hmm. And... um, so, yeah, I've been following him on Twitter since, and, you know, I'm just happy to see all the awesome things he's doing, which we'll get into in the show, and so it's good to reconnect. Oh, man, trying, trying to do awesome stuff, and yes, very good to reconnect. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, Andrew, we just heard a bit about your background, um, but what else should our listeners know about you? Oh, man, what else should they know? Uh well, I'm a proud pit bull papa. That's that's important to know. <laughs> um, aside from that, I have you know I'm I've committed myself to a professional life of empowering folks to make positive changes in their own lives, and I really believe mm-hmm. that education and learning is is the way to do that, and in particular, deeper learning and really um, just trying to provide folks with opportunities to. Mm-hmm. Um, to really ask deep questions about meaningful themes or topics that impact their own lives. And then uh, hopefully, you know, buttress that with skills and protocols and content that 
uh, helps them make sense of it and helps them uh, get going in the direction that they they want to be pointed towards. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And you said uh, a key term that we're hearing a lot now, deeper learning, um, which PBL fits into that umbrella. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about what brought you to project-based learning. Well, I, it was luck, really. Uh, I, I consider myself incredibly fortunate. So I, I served as a community organizer in West Philadelphia, and that really you know, charged me up to go into education. And I, so before that, I went and got a graduate degree in public policy and wrote about the policy side of ed and uh, even more realized like, oh my gosh, I need to get in the classroom if I ever want to be taken seriously in this realm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, so you mentioned, so the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, right? They, um, mm-hmm. after that first graduate degree, they, this unique opportunity came about for me to go and get a degree in secondary ed at the University of Pennsylvania. And mm-hmm. Penn's teacher education program just so happened to be an inquiry-based program, uh, program that uh, taught the pedagogy of project-based learning. And so I, I was inculcated in it <laughs> as a teacher and uh, consider myself incredibly fortunate uh, to have had that experience. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you, you uh, basically, you were just, dropped right into PBL training ground. <laughs> I, dropped, I dropped right into it. And, you know, with the, the nature of inquiry-based learning, it can be a little frustrating uh, for learners at the onset, right? Because you're not being told what the answer is. But right. as a learner, I, I took to it straight away because, you know, I like having lots of autonomy and direction about, or the ability to have self-direction in what I'm learning about. And so I took to it and then, uh, very much saw the connections with the students that I was serving and uh, how yeah. teaching and learning could, you know, is what is what they were yearning for. Now, when you started teaching in West Philadelphia, were you teaching traditionally and then switched? And, you know, if so, what kind of triggered that switch for you? I had, so I had a um, pretty unique experience. So I was teaching at University City High School in West Philadelphia, uh, a school that really, you know, had all the markers of inequity in public ed. There was no soap in the bathrooms. There was no clean drinking water because of lead contamination. Uh, It was a school that was built for, I think, 3,000, but we were under-enrolled. We were enrolled to about 600 kids. So I was was teaching 12th grade social science, uh, and I was yammering on about the judicial system one, one afternoon in my first year of teaching. And uh, I had a student of mine, Darrell, um, Darrell from the back of the class, uh, he kind of calls out, man, why are we learning about this? And I, as a baby teacher, I like stood up straight and I was like, oh, I got, I got the answer for this. And I, uh, said to Darrell in the whole class, um, well, it's important to know the system. If you want to be a boss and you want to open up a business, you know, understanding the system that we live in is really important. And I thought that was a great answer. And Darrell leans back in his chair and the, the wide smile on his face kind of slid from his face. And he says, he says to me, he says to the class, man, ain't no one around here teaching us to be no boss. They're teaching us to be the employees. 
And that that hit me like a ton of bricks, Shayla. Wow. And so yeah. I followed up with Darrell after the fact, and he he explained that you know his school experience has been a bunch of worksheets and it been a bunch of learning about the same stuff that he'd learned about the year prior. Uh, right. I mean, how many times do students learn about you know George Washington? Uh, right. And so I, you know, I went home and. Uh, you know, just did some deep thinking. And at this time, Philadelphia and my students in West Philadelphia, they were confronted with the nation's largest, uh, the most gun violence in, in our nation. 329 people died of gun violence in Philadelphia in 2012. Uh, 84% of them were African-American men between the ages of 18 and 34. And uh, I... I threw out my judicial judicial unit and we spent the next, you know, two, three months learning about the gun crisis, learning about the violence and how it was framed in um, just inequality, academic achievement uh, and um, access to finance across for our community. And that was that was my first project. And my students wrote letters. They wrote uh, project proposals to the mayor, the mayor of Philadelphia, who was from West Philadelphia. Uh, and the mayor actually came in and met with my students and heard their project pro- or their proposals for how to stem this violence. And since then, there was no going back for me. There's no going back to lecturing about the judicial unit, Shayla. <laughs> wow. When you can really make it come alive and make it real to the students about something that is actually happening in their community. Exactly. 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 All right, Andrew, we just heard a little bit about what brought you to project-based learning. So could you tell us a little bit about what you feel is your PBL superpower? Oh, my PBL superpower. Hmm. I think I know, actually, I know my PBL superpower is to push beyond constraints. And what I mean by that, I mean that for students. So to, uh, to set big goals for what, you know, certain exhibitions of learning might look like or be, uh, but also for adults to, to push teachers to try to push them beyond their self-constraints about what mm-hmm. could or should be able to do or what, you know, what exhibition of learning might look like. Uh, right. So let me, I'll give you one example. Okay. Uh, I, when I was, I was teaching in North Philadelphia uh, at a neighborhood public school in North Philly. And I was uh, myself and my dear friend and colleague, Montgomery Ogden, were charged with uh, restructuring senior projects, senior capstone projects, a pretty normal thing that most schools do. Uh, and okay. up to this point, you know, students, it had been explained to me that uh, what students had produced was, you know, not meeting anyone's you know, measure of aptitude. And so mm-hmm. uh, Monty and I, we redesigned, a, you know, a six-week project into a full-year uh, inquiry study for students. So we had students choose inquiry questions, community-based inquiry questions. And mm-hmm. yes, they, they wrote 10-page research papers, uh, but we, so we had them, uh, they had to create a piece of public art uh, and design the public art to reflect the research that they had done and then they had to go out into the community and put this public art in a place where they thought that uh, members of the community had to reckon with the research that they had conducted. And some of the topics mm-hmm. included 
so this was in North Philadelphia. North Philadelphia at the time was the second hungriest congressional district in the country. Uh, just the, you know, wow. the types of inequity and the types of trauma that uh, just is, it's disgusting that uh, Americans wow. face and that students have to face. So you can imagine the types of topics were about so heroin addiction, uh, money problems, uh, just abuse. Um, you know, these are the topics mm-hmm. that my students grew up with and lived with and wanted to, wanted to research and study and wrap their heads around. So their public art piece then, they had to go out and put it somewhere where the community had to reckon with the research that they had done. And then we asked them to stand kind of away from their public art piece and see how people interacted with it. Uh, and then they had students had to take that and then do a 10 minute presentation in front of their entire class on stage in the auditorium, detailing oh, wow. their research, their inquiry question, their art piece, how people interacted with it. All of this is to say mm-hmm. when uh, Monty and I first rolled this out, uh, a lot of students, you know, there was a lot of eye rolls and come on, are you serious? And yes, <laughs> yes, we were serious. And uh, it is, it's one of the things that I'm most proud of because all of my students, all of those 12th graders who had never really been asked to even write a five page paper, uh, they found a topic that they were keenly interested in and mm-hmm. they, they not only, you know, researched that topic and found out, you know, elements, you know, externalities to the topic and the issue and, um, you know, some of the ways that they might be able to stem it and solve it, but they became active in um, promoting change. Uh, and that's, yeah. that's, that's what I care about. And to your question, you know, mm. PBL superpower, we're, we're not going to change the world if kids are creating dioramas and then just talking to their class <laughs> about the dioramas. Um, right. And there's, you know, we, the work that we do, it's, it is, it's meaningful, it's impactful, but it, it can also be fun. And I really believe that it knows no limits. Everyone has experienced school. Everyone understands, I believe that learning and school is important. And so, there are very few constraints uh, when it comes to what we can ask students to do and what we can ask others in the community, other stakeholders, what we can ask of them to do with our students. Uh, right. Yeah. And, and I think that you touched on a few really important points here. And uh, we kind of combine question three and four here in thinking about, you know, your superpower, but your breakthrough moment is really when you're able to hold students to a high standard, but have them really engaged in something that interests them. And that's where we're finding high levels of student engagement. And, you know, the fact that the students had to not only observe their community members interacting with their public art, but that public presentation where they had to answer and dialogue with their peers, I think that's just awesome. And, you know, rethinking kind of what a public presentation can look like. I really, I really like the spin you guys put on that there. It's really cool. It was rad. It's, you know, I, <laughs> I, um, so authenticity is a, is a buzzword in education. Uh, but I think it's, you know, integral to PBL because if you're going to ask students to learn and research and, and act uh, really deeply around certain topics, they have to be authentic. And I, 
I have not copywritten this, so feel free to steal this. Any of your listeners can steal it. <laughs> I really believe that authenticity, it doesn't mean like, oh, kids like video games. So like every project has to be about video games. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. uh, I really believe authenticity comes down to two core elements. Uh, it's can students see an affinity group that they belong to in your learning or in their learning? So that's, you know, that could be teenager, or that could be a cultural group, or that could be a geographic group. Um, and then also, for whom is this learning for, right? Who will students right. impact with their learning? Who do they need to share it with? And because if their learning is just to, you know, pass a test or get to the next grade, or, you know, we're just gonna like do Google Slides and present it to our class, I, I really believe that that is not it's not good enough for students. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we can do better. We can do better. We can do more. We can, absolutely. Yes. And, we and we should. <laughs> we should. We're asking them to show up to school for, you know, six, seven, eight hours of the day. They deserve better. They do. Mm -hmm. They do. They do, Andrew. If you guys can't hear the passion right now in Andrew's voice, I, I hope, <laughs> I hope you you take a few moments to just check your heart because I don't know how you can't feel the passion. Uh, um, and I will most likely have to copy and steal your definition of authenticity. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> so, um, you know, you talked about this breakthrough moment, this amazing project, but what has really been your most challenging PBL moment? And I know you've worked with, you know, school leaders and, and people that are starting PBL schools and, and, and teachers and students. So what has been the most challenging PBL moment for you? Hmm. I think it coincides with my breakthrough or my superpower. Uh, mm -hmm. and maybe I need to develop a little bit more empathy for the, what I'm about to talk about, but I am... I have a hard time or I have a difficult time when working with teachers uh, who just, they just don't want to take that next step. And uh, there could be a myriad reasons why they don't want to take that next step in their practice. And what I mean by that is it normally it revolves around control and control of the classroom and control of the content. And I think it's wrapped up in a, and a fear of, you know, losing control, like, oh my gosh, like if kids are in groups and they're having to do some, you know, independent research in groups and I'm not the one standing in front of the class telling them all the information that they need to know, like when kids are in groups, it can be a little messy and there can be, uh, teachers can feel a lack of control um, over the classroom mm -hmm. and over the learning, but uh, it is a challenge for me when adults, uh, they don't want to take that leap of faith that their students can do it, that they can with like robust structure and some awesome protocols to help guide them about how to do their learning. Uh, when adults don't believe that kids can do their own learning. Uh, and when adults have a, tr have a hard time, you know, being vulnerable with their students, because as, as you know, like PBL, like sometimes stuff goes completely wrong. And <laughs> I really believe that it takes an adult that is comfortable in him or herself to stand in front of a group of kids and say, hey, like this thing didn't work. Or, and so what do we think? How can we make this better? Or 
to stand in front of a group of kids and say, hey, I really want to try this new way of learning. Uh, I'm not sure how it's going to go. We're going to do it. And then I want you to give me feedback. Um, so when, when uh, adults don't have that mind, uh, mindset towards their practice, uh, it can be a little frustrating uh, for me personally. Yeah. No, that's, that's definitely tough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of our listeners are new to PBL or just PBL practitioners and just looking for just some inspiration right now, because as you said, it, it is difficult. It's hard work. It's different <laughs> from what most of us are trained in. So what tips do you have for PBL practitioners, especially related to your area of focus? Ooh, uh, involve the students in project planning. And nice. so like it, uh, it makes no sense to me that adults, that teachers try to design learning opportunities for students absent of the students because product designers would never do that uh, when they're designing a shoe or when they're designing a chair to sit in. I'm, I'm looking at a chair now. That's why they came to mind. Uh, <laughs> and, and But a lot of teachers, and I, I surely I tried to do this, uh, try to come up with full units or full projects without ever asking students for feedback. Uh, and so what I would recommend to folks who are jumping into PBL, uh, you know, come up with, you know, so know your standards, know the standards that you want to hit, uh, in this unit of learning and then try to come up with, you know, what could be a really neat exhibition of learning or understanding. No, I'm basically, what I'm saying is come up with the skeleton to the project, the, the big, the standards, the driving question, the exhibition of, uh, learning. And then bring students in, bring a small group of students in and do a charrette protocol or do a a critical friends protocol and involve some adults as well. Uh, And when I have done this personally, and then when I have facilitated this for other teachers, it is always, it's always the, like the best part of the day. If I've spent a whole day with teachers doing some learning, the best part of the day Mm -hmm. is when I stop talking and the students show up and provide feedback because it's it's incredibly authentic and yeah they they will tell you if a project sucks if it's boring Uh, (laughs) and that's important to know yeah no that's Mm -hmm. that's awesome Mm -hmm. that's such a great tip too because we often are planning in a silo what we think students want to do and why not pull kids into a small focus group i love that absolutely Mm -hmm. love that Um, are there any uh, specific organizational tools that have really helped you that you'd like to pass along? Hmm, organizational tools that have helped me. Well, so I, uh, I currently work with an organization called New Tech Network. And uh, some of your listeners might not know what this organization is. I did not know it before I joined the organization, but we are the nation's largest network of deeper learning schools, over 200 schools across the country. Uh, and these are the predominantly traditional public schools in uh, urban areas, rural areas, suburban areas. And these are schools who come to us, we're a nonprofit design firm, come to us and partner with us to make teaching and learning uh, more real world, more robust, more project based, uh, and to transform uh, learning organizations into organizations of learning for students and adults. So, with all that said, uh, New Tech has, we, ha- we have, so all New Tech schools, students, their grade is a composite of five core learning outcomes. Uh, so it's not like tests and homeworks and projects. Mm-hmm. 
Hello. Hello, hello. Shayla? Yeah. You can hear me. Yeah, you, you can oh. keep going. You were saying the greatest composed of. Oh, yes, the greatest composed of five core learning outcomes. Uh, and those are uh, knowledge and thinking. And so that's traditional teaching and learning. Uh, but then oral communication, written communication, agency, and collaboration. And I'm going somewhere with this. Uh, and so New Tech has created developmentally appropriate rubrics for each of those five core learning outcomes, depending on you know, what grade level your, the, your students are at. And these rubrics are on our website. And the way that I coach teachers as a part of the network to use it, and I'll coach whomever is listening now and might want to go steal these rubrics, they are a great jumping off point for skills that we, I think we can all agree students need. And so the language is uh, research-based, it's developmentally appropriate. And so I urge your listeners to go find them on New Tech's website, steal them, and then adapt them to fit your needs. Uh, don't try, if you believe that students collaborating and really building interpersonal uh, skills is important, then go grab these rubrics, you know, see the developmentally appropriate language, and then, you know, map it on to wherever your students are and rock and roll with that. Commit to scaffolding these skills, you know, skills that aren't, you know, when did Columbus sail the ocean blue, skills that kids will actually need uh, in your practice. Uh, I would nice. say, I would say, um, aside from the rubrics, I'm a huge fan uh, of, I only know the NSRF, what is that? The National School Reform Faculty. Uh, mm. They have a bevy of protocols that are just brilliant. And I in my work now, I use these protocols primarily with adult learners, but they are mm -hmm. completely applicable to students. And so text rendering protocols or protocols that you can use around uh, group collaboration, really, I think there's like 50 or 60 of them up on the website. So NSRF protocols, if you Google that, uh, just a lot of great resources because here's, and tell me if you, uh, if you see this problem, because it surely comes up in my work you know, having kids work in groups is great, but oftentimes kid, uh, a teacher will put students in groups and then say, hey, you need to do this thing, and then they'll walk away, and then the kids will just stare at each other and be like, oh, what do we do now? Uh, so I think it's really important to not only provide the what students need to collaborate on, but how to collaborate. And I really believe that that's where a robust protocol can, can make the difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Andrew, you've just really given us a lot to think about. And if folks want to stay connected with you, how can they keep up with you after the interview's over? They can. So they can. I'm on the Twitters, the Twitter sphere uh, at Andrew Byros. <laughs> so Andrew B-I-R-O-S. Uh, that's that's the best way to reach me, really. And if if you want to rap about anything that you've heard, uh, or you're curious about where to find a resource, just hit me up there and I, uh, I'll i load you up because I really believe that all students deserve deeper learning opportunities. And there are so many kids, so many kids who are sitting in classrooms right now where they're put in rows and told to sit down and shut up and take notes. And that is not only bad for individual students, that is really detrimental for the future of our populace. And on that note, folks, you have just spent some time with a PBL expert guru, a guy who is 
clearly got the passion uh, for moving this work forward. And Andrew, I just want to say it's been so great to reconnect with you and just to hear your passion for this work. Thank you for all that you're doing. Ah, brilliant, Shayla. I, and I appreciate <laughs> your work. And uh, yeah, uh, let's, let's stay connected. Let's not have it be another 11 years, okay? I know, I know, I know. We, we're we're going to get this together, guys. All right. <laughs> all right, have a great rest of your week, Andrew. Thanks so much, Shayla. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of PBL in Practice. Take a moment right now and click that subscribe button. And if you want to hear past podcasts, please go to www.shaylastafford.com. Have an awesome week.